last week in Mark 15, verse 24, and we will go through verse 26. Maybe by now you've noticed that Pastor seems to have slowed down a lot. It wasn't just a couple weeks ago that he was covering sometimes 10 or 15 verses in a shot. But the truth is, as we just sung, Oh, the Deep, Deep Love of Jesus, I was reflecting on my youth when I was completely ignorant of how much a sinner I was. The love of Jesus really didn't mean anything to me. Jesus died for your sins. Great. Here's a slushy. The gospel, I can attest to my own shame, the, talk, the gospel was grossly underappreciated in my own heart and mind. And it was like a sign, like a warning sign that you saw in your rearview mirror. It doesn't really mean anything to you now that it's passed. And so I just want you to know it's quite intentional that we are going as slowly as we are through this point. I want to hit the gospel hard. I mean, not only is it my job as a minister of the gospel, it is my concern, my utmost greatest concern that everyone here really get the gospel. So our text today will divide into three points. Verse 24, the takings. That points to the the soldiers taking the clothes of the Lord Jesus. Verse 25, the time. And verse 26, the tablet. Let's read what Mark has for us. And they crucified him and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. Verse 24, we're calling the takings, and the takings, as I said, uh, alludes or refers to the custom that the Roman execution squad would have to divvy up, to divide up, and to take for themselves the belongings of the one that they are executed. The, the, the condemned prisoner is by all means a dead man at this point, and what use are his belongings going to be to him? He's already dead by all t- intents and purposes. So they take what f- few meager possessions he had left on him, and maybe you ask, why would a Roman soldier want uh, sandals or or an outer garment or a, or a turban of a of an executed Jew. Well, surely he would have had enough clothes for his body, but he could always sell them and make an extra buck or two. This is this is pocket change that they're getting. But verse twenty four tells us that that they cast lots so that they knew what they themselves would take. This this casting of lots it's. It's the idea, it's the equivalent of, of flipping a coin or, or pulling straws. Uh, this was to settle the pr- a problem that they have on their hands. John's parallel tells us that there are four soldiers but five articles of clothing. There is the headgear or the turban. There's the sandals. There's the outer robe. There's the belt. 
And then there is, uh, which John points out, a seamless tunic that was worth, it was the most valuable of all the articles of clothing, and they didn't want to rip it. And so one lucky person is going to get to walk away with not one, but two door prizes. Now it's at this point that John tells us in his narrative that the casting of lots and the, the taking of his clothes is a fulfillment of Psalm twenty two eighteen. John quotes, they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. Why doesn't Mark tell us that? Well, he will. He doesn't blatantly cite Psalm 22 just yet. He's going to allude to it once more down in verse 29. And then he's actually going to cite us. He's going to tell the reader, he's going to tell you and tell me that he has Psalm 22 in mind by citing a verse from it in verse 34. Now, don't let this gloss over you. Don't let this pass over your head. Hopefully, this fulfillment of Scripture speaks to you. Scripture is being fulfilled in this very scene before us. Hopefully, I pray, something in your heart, something in my heart, something in our minds is roused as we think for a moment that what God has written down in His Holy Scripture by the hand of David a thousand years prior to this. Beloved, the, the, the age of the United States is roughly 250 years. This is a thousand years. We don't even have an edifice in this nation that even comes close to being that old. A thousand years prior, four times the age of our nation when David wrote this. And he, when he wrote it, crucifixion wasn't even invented yet. Even the most rudimentary form of crucifixion. Before the Romans would come and perfect it and add all of their details and their, and their uh, modifications, that wouldn't even come. Even the most rudimentary form of crucifixion wouldn't appear for several centuries after David wrote. And yet we see with pinpoint precision, with detail, we see David, in, by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Describing the agonies of Christ in his crucifixion. Now turn, yeah, I hope you have your finger in Psalm 22 because I'm not going to wait for you. Psalm 22, look at verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. That's what we're going to see down in verse 39. And then look, then look at verse 6. But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head. That's what we're going to see in verse 29. Saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let, let, and yet you have to read this with, with a sense of sarcasm. Commit yourself to, to the Lord. Let, let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. And then look at verse 11. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. For there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They, have, they open wide their mouth at me 
as a ravening and roaring lion, I am poured out like water. At this point, remember all of the, the physical, the physiological trauma that is happening to Jesus. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaves to my jaws, for you lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers have encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Crucifixion hasn't been invented yet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. As you reflect on the brutal, merciless, relentless, insufferable agony of the Lord Jesus as he has not only been abandoned and scourged and beaten and slapped and spit upon and mocked and ridiculed and blasphemed, but now crucified. Beloved, we we should be amazed. We should be comforted when we see that this Jesus, we should be comforted when we see that Jesus hanging on the cross isn't him uh, unsuccessfully trying to seize the wheel of history only to find it unmoving before him and then unfortunately grinding him in its gears. That's what that's what liberal theology that is what compromised theology will tell us. Trying to find a, a, a rationalistic, naturalistic explanation for how Jesus ended up on the cross. No, the scripture says The cross was the goal. It was his destination. This gruesome death is and was and always has been his destination. This isn't a tragic accident. This isn't a a, a uh, an unfortunate turn of events. This is not Jesus losing. This is Jesus winning. How that should comfort us. That Christ is doing what the scripture says said he would do. This isn't Jesus losing. This is Jesus winning. This isn't Jesus the victim. This is Jesus the victorious redeemer doing precisely what the word of God said he had to do and must do. Remember, this must happen. Mark 8.31. I must be rejected. I must suffer and be killed and be raised. The Son of Man must suffer many things. This is, do, this is Jesus doing what the scripture said he must do. And you and I should have hearts aflame, not only as we see Jesus playing the man, not only as we see Jesus steadfastly enduring the cross for us, but our hearts should be fanned into flame as we realize not one jot or tittle of the scripture will go down in history as fraudulent, as erroneously penned as being merely written of man and not written of God. I believe some of us need to have a firmer conviction that God got it things right when he spoke through his word. I know I do. I need firmer conviction that the word of God is in fact the word of God. How about you? 
And so while many out there think that that this this is a oh, that this is a a product that this is a, a fabrication of men's writing that this is nothing more than religious propaganda written to to push the agenda of men written so that it can pursue and obtain and secure the glory of men that's not what this is beloved this is the word of god given to us so that we may have that we may have knowledge of christ this was given to you and to me and to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ so that she may know her Savior and God. And to accomplish that end, God gave us his trustworthy word, not a half-baked book. God, God didn't give a book that is subject to the changing whims of culture you, you walk into a Christian bookstore and nine times out of a ten, the book you, you, you pick up a book about the Bible and it's going to tell you the Bible needs to be reread in light of, of the change of culture, the change of time. God gave us an abiding word, an enduring word. It is a book of his fully inspired, meaning it came from God. Word. It is an authoritative word. It has the right to tell us what our faith and practice must be. It is an inerrant word. It has no errors. It is an infallible word, meaning it is not capable of being wrong. So, beloved, don't gloss over this. Don't don't read that the that the psalm that the scripture was fulfilled when they cast lots for his clothing. Don't gloss over that and go, oh, that's nice. That's special. This isn't the peddling of some corny prophetic poppycock. It seems like it's just every other week that we hear someone saying that, you know, if you apply this code, if you if you apply this rubric to the scriptures, then you can see that the thing that just happened in the news, well, God predicted it so long ago. I just read the, just this week that some rabbi is saying that if you apply his code that God supposedly gave him, then, then God predicted the coronar- coron- the thing that's going around now. Coron- cor- corona? Corona? Corona. Yes, the, that thing. A uh, couple, couple years ago, you know, every, every so many decades, we, we have uh, lunar eclipses. And uh, when that happens, the... The earth is blocking the, the, the light from the sun. And you can see the moon, but the light refracting around the earth gives the, the moon a, a bloody hue. And a, a man named John Hagee wrote some books, uh, or wrote a book called The Four Blood Moons and how this is some great pr- big prophecy. Do you remember anything special happening about three years ago? Neither do I. The same thing has been done every time there are earthquakes or tsunamis or droughts or every time the economy spikes up or every time the economy falls or any time anybody steps on a twig in the Middle East. Oh, the fulfillment of prophecy. All of that is rubbish. All of that is, is corny, prophetic poppycock. But this, this right here, the, the sufferings of Christ so plainly written down we read psalm 22 did you not see is it is it at all a stretch to see the crucifixion of jesus christ in those verses we read is it a stretch or is it as plain as day you tell me plain 
we see the truthfulness, we see the veracity of God being vindicated and being heralded before our very eyes as we read these words, how we must be comforted and how we must have a change in our thinking towards the word of God. This must affect us. This must, this must strengthen us to think we really have the real word of God in our hands. This must make us, this must make us, Justin, it's happening to me too. This must make us change the way we view the word of God. This must encourage us to read it more. This must admonish us for our lack of reading. We must desire to become more familiar with the word of God. Doesn't, don't you see the fulfillment of scripture? Don't you feel it capturing your soul? Don't you see it, this entreating your mind, read me, commit yourself to me, commit me to your heart and mind. Blessed is the man who reads it day and night and meditates on it. This should capture us, but I can tell you who it didn't capture. I can point you to four men who didn't give a rip that a thousand-year-old prophetic psalm is being fulfilled, not only before their very eyes, but by their very actions, by their very own hands. As Jesus is drinking the cup and dying for sinners, these four men who have mocked him and ridiculed him made his day a living hell nailed him, and lifted him up on a cross, they could care less about Psalm 22. They are completely indifferent. It is just another day at work for them. They are uncaring towards him, and they are uncaring towards their own souls. They know the charges against him, charges which are so bogus, even Helen Keller could see, one, that he is an innocent man, that he is completely undeserving of this. But also, two, that he is not an ordinary man. Ordinary men resisted crucifixion. Ordinary men would, would, would reach for that wine mixed with myrrh. Any opportunity to alleviate the agony they would take. Jesus is not like normal men. He is not an ordinary man. There is something extra extraordinary. There is something peculiar about him. Moses saw something peculiar. Remember that? What did Moses see? What what oddity? What unusual thing did Moses see? Exodus three or four. The burning bush. And when Moses saw that peculiar, peculiar bush that for some reason didn't burn up, he said, I'm, I'm going I'm to turn aside and see this. Look at this now. This is odd. Moses drew near to investigate. These men have a being infinitely more holy, infinitely more unique and peculiar than a burning bush. They have God in the flesh who is all but inviting the crucifixion to come upon him. He is the most willing condemned 
man to ever die by crucifixion. They, they are in, he is in their hands and they are uninterested and they are unmoved. Their hearts are callous. Their hearts are hardened. Their hearts are as hard as the nails that they have used to pin the Lord Jesus to the cross. Beloved, you must see how great the divide is between what is happening up up upon the cross and what is happening under the cross. On the cross, we see the burning love of Jesus for sinners as he's dying in their place, as he's bearing their sins. What do we see under the cross? Complete apathy. Complete apathy. These soldiers... In them, we we see a picture of so many. Do you see a picture of yourself? Do you see a picture of yourself? Are you so near the word of God? Are you so close to him? Do you have such such a close proximity? Do you have a WWJD bracelet? Do you have do you have tattoos labeled or painted on your on the wall of your home? Do you have a Jesus? fish bumper sticker do you have a do you have a scripture tattoo is your bible very highlighted are you under this pulpit week in and week out and so near the truth of this word and yet in your heart and soul do you remain unmoved do you remain uninterested God, have mercy on your soul, if so. God, have mercy on your soul if you have more hype, more zeal, more interest, more enthusiasm for the big game than you have for the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God, have mercy on your soul if you have allowed sports to be an idol. If you have any idol, God have mercy on your soul. What benefit is there in devoting yourself to to any number of pleasures of this world, such as sports, and throwing yourself into that world and, and pushing yourself and being the greatest champion of athletes and earning the respect and the admiration of millions and having millions in the in the bank account and being the first pick on on that little fantasy thing that they do, if in a moment you are taken out. It can happen in a moment. About this time last week, such a thing happened. What value is it if you throw your life into all of that and are taken out in a moment and leave all those things behind you as you are plunged into eternity? What good are those things if they don't benefit your soul? Beloved, listen to me. Jesus Christ benefits your soul. Know that. It would be wise for you to to deeply drink of the fountain of biblical truth concerning him. Again, I am intentionally going painstakingly slow through the crucifixion of Christ. You You have the rest of your lives to learn how to be wise with your money and how to have a happy marriage and how to raise your kids and how to... 
do all this and manage your house and do all these things for the glory of God. I cannot afford to let anyone miss this core, critical, foundational truth that Christ Jesus died for sinners. These four men couldn't care less about the truthfulness of the word of God as it was being proven true by their very hands. God incarnate, hanging on a cross, dying, gasping for breath before their very eyes because of their very actions. And all they're concerned about is getting their petty dues. Who's going to get that tunic? I could make an extra five shekels. Are these soldiers callously casting for the clothes of the Lord Jesus? Are they, are they a picture? Are they a reflection of your own calloused indifference to him and to everything he has done for you? Can I step on your toes for a second if I haven't already? If, 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 if even now, if the preaching of the person and the work of Jesus Christ, if it is a fountain that you eagerly drink from again and again and again, if, if you are listening to the words that I'm saying and they are like a, a glass of cool water to a man in the Sahara or like a banquet to a starving man, or if in your heart you are urging and pleading with me to hurry it up already. Stick it into second gear already, Pastor. That's gonna, that is going to tell me something about you, but more importantly, that's going to tell you something about you. Do you have a calloused heart? Are you indifferent to the suffering of Jesus? Is his agony on the cross for my sin and for your sin, is that boring to you? Is that indifferent to you? I would encourage every one of you to do some soul searching. And if this does describe your heart and your mind, I would plead with you. I would, I would, I would instruct you with the authority I have as a preacher. I would instruct you, but I would also plead with you to fall in love with the Lord Jesus Christ. Fall in love with the Lord Jesus Christ and fall in love with the word of God because it speaks so plainly of Jesus and if, he, if you do find him boring, if he is not the substance of your life, if he is not the anchor of your soul, pray that God would give you a heart for him. James 1.5 plainly says, says, If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all with all liberality. And it will be given to him. If you pray that God, if you pray with your heart that that God would grant you a heart that would seek after the Lord Jesus, it would, it would glorify God to do that. He will do it if you ask with faith. If you need to do that today, do it. What are you waiting for? Come to him. Fall at his feet. Give him your, give him your life. Receive the forgiveness of sins. Receive the promise of eternal life. Become a citizen to heaven. Come to Christ. For the men, at least, we are currently going through a study on the Lord Jesus. 
on Thursday nights. It, this is an excellent way to learn more about the Lord Jesus Christ. You will not come to the end of your life and say in sober reflection, man, I wish I hadn't learned so much about Jesus. Come to Christ. Let's move on. Verse 25. Mark says, It was the third hour when they crucified him. The third hour. The, uh, this is using Jewish time. Uh, the Romans started their day at midnight. The Jews started their day at 6 o'clock in the morning. So the third hour would be 9 a.m. And this is significant for two reasons. One, that the time which Jesus is hanging on the cross tells us how hastily Jesus' enemies were to have him killed. It is 9 in the morning. Some of us don't even get up and have our cup of coffee at 9 in the morning. It is early a.m. for some people. He, he is, uh, and this is my general approximation. We aren't told speci- uh, specifically, but approximately Jesus is arrested sometime around 2 or 3, give or take. He is tried before the Sanhedrin sometime uh, between 3 and 5. He is, uh, we know from John that he stood before Pilate at 6 a.m. Because John says it was the 6th hour. That's using Roman time. So 6 a.m. He is, uh, con- he, he, he is ferried back and forth between Pilate and Herod. He is condemned. He is sentenced. He is tortured again. Where again, Remember, he is made uh, a laughingstock as a, as a, as a joke of a king. He is tortured again, and then he is marched through the streets as a dead man walking, carrying his crossbeam, and now finally being nailed, lifted up, and left for dead at 9 a.m. That is mercilessly fast. They wanted him dead. The other thing we learn, I think this is the more important thing, is that 9 a.m. is approximately the time, the hour, when the Judeans slaughtered their Passover lambs as they prepared for Passover. And if you, as you recall, Jesus celebrated the Passover on the previous day. And you may ask, well, how, how is it that, they, that the Jews celebrated the Passover on Thursday, and yet, you say, Pastor, you're saying that Jesus is, uh, is on the cross when the Jews were preparing for the Passover on Friday. Well, uh, I'm getting this from Honer, uh, Harold Honer and John MacArthur. The Galilees and the Pharisees began celebrating Passover on uh, Thursday, which is Nisan, which is not a car and it's not an instant noodles. Nisan the 13th, and the Judeans... And the Sadducees, which includes the, 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 the priests, they celebrated the Passover. They began celebrating on Nisan the 14th. That would be Friday. So Pharisees, the Galileans, on Thursday. The Judeans and the Sadducees on Friday. And by this point, by the third hour, by 9 o'clock, the, Judean, the Judeans have brought their lambs to the temple And they are being inspected and approved and slaughtered. And here's the correlation. On the same day, at approximately the same time, thousands upon thousands of Judean Passover lambs, or or lambs intended for 
the Judean families are dying on the altar at approximately the same time Jesus is dying on the cross. As the blood of thousands of lambs begin to flow inside the city at, at, the, at, the, great, at the great and impressive-looking Herodian temple, surrounded by empty tradition and religiosity, the far greater, more precious blood of the Lamb of God, which, which He has provided, He is the Lamb which God has provided, that blood is being shed outside the gate on a dirty Roman cross. You'll remember that on several occasions, uh, uh, the people or the Jews tried to seize Jesus, either to make him the king or to try to kill him. And time after time after time again, Jesus said, nope, it's not my time. Now that it is his time, it can't happen soon enough. Now in verse 26, we see the tablet the tablet and mark writes he he speaks of an inscription of the charge in verse 26 that this is the official charge for which a condemned prisoner was being executed and it was customary for the charge to be written on on some kind of placard some kind of board or some kind of tablet that would either be hung around the neck of the condemned or or it would be attached to a pole and then be carried aloft by the forefront soldier leading the death march. And he would be kind of like a, a, a standard bearer. And this, this tablet, whether it's up on the pole or whether, whether it's hanging by a rope around the prisoner's neck, it's basically a banner for people to read. And it would be, it would be written very clearly. This isn't like a doctor signing your prescription. It was written very clearly. John tells us that it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek, all of the main languages of the area. And that's because Rome wanted everybody to know there are consequences for deviancy, there are consequences for sedition, there are consequences for rebellion, for criminal activity, for any behavior that is contrary to the interests of Caesar. If you want Rome's attention, if you want to invite her swift retribution, all you need to do is do what this guy did. You follow his example, you will get his reward. This tablet containing the inscription, after it is either held aloft on the pole or hanging around his neck, it would be taken off and it would be nailed uh, on the cross, Matthew tells us that it was it was placed above his head, and that's why uh, we that's why we know that his cross was something like like that cross. There were different styles of crosses, but there had to be enough of a beam above his head for the for the for this tablet to be attached. And as Mark tells us in verse twenty six, the charge for which Rome deemed it necessary to execute the Lord is that he is the king of the Jews. That's why he had to die. Now, this phrase, the king of the Jews, this is not, the, this is not how the Jews would have written it. This is, this is Rome's charge. 
the Jews would have inscribed the king of Israel. You remember, that's how, that's how the Jews referred to themselves. They, uh, remember, Nathaniel said, we have found the king of Israel. But this is, this is the Romans' take on things. He, he is the king of the Jews. And the intention of the charge is to label Jesus not as the fulfillment of, of messianic prophecy, not as the long-awaited king, but just as a, a rival king. Some usurper who has tried, who has risen up to resist and to challenge the great and mighty Caesar. And to complete the picture, Pilate then has this would-be king crucified on the cross, not only intended for the terrorist Barabbas, who in all likelihood was one who resisted and challenged and opposed Caesar, But who is he placed besides but two other insurrectionists, two others who had committed murder in the rebellion? These are are two other Jews guilty of insurrection. And so this this completed picture is of a phony, would-be, fraudulent, impotent king who failed and who suffers the fate alongside two of his would-be soldiers. And this is a grotesque warning of what happens to anybody, any people who rise up and challenge Rome. Now, let's just think for a second. Are there any, is there any grounds, is there any substance, is there any validity to this charge? That Jesus, not that, not that Jesus is king of the Jews, is there substance, is there validity to the charge that Jesus is a rebel? Yay or nay? No. John 18.36, we looked at this. Jesus told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world, meaning he is a king, but I'm not a threat to you. I'm not a threat to Caesar. If, if it were, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would rise up and fight. If I was a king here, my servants would be marching upon your palace. They would be busting down the doors and they wouldn't let me hand it, be, hand, be handed over to you and put on a cross. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants wouldn't let this happen to me. But nevertheless, he is a king. Matthew 5.41, Jesus told his followers, whoever forces you to go one mile, and the idea there is, is the very thing that happened to Simon of Cyrene, which, by the way, Cyrene is on the coast of northern Africa. I forgot to, go th- I forgot to mention that earlier. But the, when, when the soldiers pressed into service, Simon of Cyrene, that, that's what this is. If anyone forces you, compels you to go one mile because you have to carry his stuff, you submit to yourself to the authority, you be an excellent citizen, and you go with him two miles. That doesn't sound like something a, a rebel or an insurrectionist or somebody guilty of sedition would do somebody who's trying to fight the machine fight hand it to the man matthew 8 15 to 30 to 13 jesus heals the paralyzed son of a roman centurion if he's a rebel wouldn't 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 this be aiding and abetting the enemy don't you usually not help the, the people the guy you're trying to kick out of town now mark has already given us enough to know that this is a bogus charge mark twelve seventeen. remember when the religious leaders tried to trap jesus and they brought him a coin 
And they said, should we pay the poll tax or not? What did Jesus say? Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. His image is on the coin. Give it to Caesar. And then he said, You're, who's, God's image is on your soul. Give it to God. Don't rebel against Caesar. Give Caesar his dues. Jesus' followers would have been the best citizens, the best people in the Roman Empire. Pilate and Caesar should have been thrilled to have Jesus ruling over the Jews. Think about it. A Jewish king who actually taught and encouraged his people to pay their taxes to Rome. Completely bogus charge that he was guilty of being rebellious, of sedition, trying to usurp the throne from Caesar. It was a bogus charge, and the soldiers knew it, and Pilate knew it. But nevertheless, this charge is is Pilate's means of getting his own petty revenge against the Sanhedrin. And he's taking really a stab at the Jewish people as a whole. Remember, they said, remember the, 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 the Jewish leaders came back when they heard what, what the tablet said, and they, they tried to get Pilate to change it to saying, no, 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 no. You need to say, he said, he claimed to be the king of the Jews. Don't, don't present it as a fact. Present it as a joke. And that's where Pilate says, what I have written, I have written. In other words, go away. I'm not changing my mind. This, this is really a slap to the Jewish people as a whole because it communicates to them, if anyone, if, if you raise up any other man like him, if you raise, if you have the audacity to ever raise one up to be your king again, whom Caesar does not appoint, this is what will happen to him. Well, what is happening to this guy is going to happen to the rest of them. Doesn't matter how many you bring, it's futile, so give it up. You have no king but Caesar, and anyone who thinks otherwise is a fool. That's what this tablet means. Now let me end with this. I want you to notice how much more detail has been given to the humiliation and the shame and the mockery of Jesus. More so than the physical sufferings. I I guarantee you the physical sufferings were horrible. The Passion of the Christ was probably the most most faithful depiction, but even then, Hollywood could not produce something that accurately depicted a Roman crucifixion and get it out into theaters. The suffering by far was horrible, but... Notice the gospel writers, they just say, and they scourged him, and they crucified him. They just brush over it as if it's common knowledge, because it was common knowledge back then. But we have in in the word more detail given to the mocking, to the emotional suffering of Jesus. It is, he is one who is mocked. He is one who is rejected. Remember the, the leaders Slapping his face, saying, prophesy, who hit you? Who hit you? Prophesy, who hit you? As, as they're beating him. And then they, as they spit on him, as they deride him. And 
And then Herod dressed him up in the royal robe. Herod mocked him. The priests mocked him. Even Pilate and the soldiers mocked him with the purple guard and the crown of thorns and the reed as a scepter. And as they said, Hail Jesus, King of the Jews. Hail as they bowed down below while others were beating him. And then they alternated turns. And then there was the de- the the horrible shame of the death march. And now as he's hanging Dying naked on a cross with his two soldiers. The cherry on top. The last little bit that completes the picture is the title. Is the banner. High and written so plainly clear that everyone can see it. This is Jesus of Nazareth. This is the Nazarene who thought he could be king the Jews. Beloved, the, mo- the truth is, is while his suffering has stopped, the mocking hasn't. Netflix just came out with a film recently depicting a gay Jesus, and they have produced it not because of any concern for the truth, not because they want to entertain Christians. A movie like that, I'm sorry, it, it's just plainly simple. A movie like, movie like that was produced only to mock and make fun of people who actually want to uh, uh, believe in a biblical Jesus. It is, it is a 100% production of sheer mockery. As we survey this scene, Daniel's going to sing, or uh, uh, we're going to do, as I survey the wondrous cross in a minute, and as we are surveying this scene before our eyes, I want you to do two things. One, I want you to give thanks that God was patient with you while you were one of these mockers. We, we were all there. Nobody comes out of the womb praising God except for John the Baptist. We know that he was born again before he was born again. We all come out of the womb, womb speaking lies. We are all in desperate need of conversion, of, of the second birth. Thank God that, he, that Christ Jesus, as he bled dying for you, loved you, and was patient with your sin. And secondly, pray for sinners who still mock the true king today. We have loved ones, we have friends, we have families and neighbors who could all benefit from us praying for them a little more ardently, don't we? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this word May we all be grounded steadfastly in it. May we all clearly understand the grace, the blessed grace in the truth that you took our place. You took the place of sinners. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for loving us to the point of dying for us. And thank you for the life that we have in your name. Amen.